You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 18th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Jennifer Dixon. Jennifer, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, that's a big, that's a big start. Yeah, so I'm a huge nerd, but my claim to fame, I guess, is that I gave up a career as a computer programmer uh, to actually go back to school to get a graduate degree in evolutionary biology. So I'm one of those weird, like, older students who Mm -hmm. makes no money and is doing awesome science. That's good to have a little life experience under your belt and then go back to school. I think they make excellent students, actually. Yeah, I I think those of us who've kind of been around for a while and really figured out what our passion is do better anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's kind of like climbing uphill. Like you're you know you're always catching up with the people who've been in the field for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond being a scientist, uh, I also do a little bit of writing. Uh, I just had an essay published in Chicks Dig Gaming. I wrote my essay. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <laughs> oh, he's gone. Oh my god, <laughs> nice. That's, sorry, that, that was a South Park. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> no, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I, I was a bit of a badass in Eve for a while, took down some corporations. So I did a little bit of uh, writing about that. And I'm working mm-hmm. on a book called uh, Botanical Voyeur, A Guide to Sex on the Prairie. So I'm kind of a nerd of all trades. Yeah. And you, you did a podcast for a while. I did, actually. Uh, with my good friend Kevin Weiser, we started The Walking Eye, which was an indie gaming podcast. We ran for about... Six years total, I was on there for about four before I started my graduate degree. And at that point, I kind of just became a guest on occasion. So, yeah, we won a couple of mm-hmm. awards. It was a good time. All right. Well, Bob, you have another installment of Forgotten Superheroes of Science this week. Yes. Uh, for this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm going to talk about Katherine Johnson. She is a space scientist and mathematician for NASA and calculated the flight trajectory for the first American in space. Wait a minute. You guys- is she still kicking? She's 95 last I heard. Wow. Ooh. Have you guys heard of her? I have. Probably not. <laughs> really? Oh, that's awesome. Katherine Johnson was born in 1918 in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. She started work in 1953 at the predecessor of NASA called, guys, what was it called? NASA? Oh, it's- no. <laughs> No, NASA, <laughs> NASA, yeah. NASA Junior. No, NACA, N-A-C-A, the National That's Advisory right. Committee for Aeronautics. Very um, cool. Yeah. she. When I first read that, I was like, is that a typo? <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> I had to look that one up. So <laughs> she and other women uh, worked on problems that engineers gave them. She called her group Computers Who Wore Skirts. <laughs> she stood out, though, by her intense curiosity, always asking the whys in the hows and even the why nots, uh, which nobody really had ever done before. They essentially just did what they were told without, you know, without Question. much back and forth at all. Yeah. So, so likewise, no women had ever attended the meetings and the briefings that they would, that they would hold. Uh, but she went anyway because she said, do you guys, is there a law against it? And they said, well, no, there's no law. So she just started going and she said, I, I'm contributing. I, I should be able to go. And she did. She became so invaluable that, uh, she became among the first women to be pulled from that calculating pool of women to work on other programs like the flight research team, which was 100% males up until that point. Uh, this led her to performing calculations for the first American in orbit, Alan Shepard, and even for the trajectory for the 1969 Apollo mission to the moon, which is, uh, pretty impressive. Bob, that reminds me of Dune. 
Remember in Dune, you know, so in Dune Universe, there's no computer, so they had to have right. rooms of people yes. doing calculations. Yeah, which always struck me as odd because, you know, it would take a thousand people a millennia to do just some basic stuff that a supercomputer can do in a nanosecond. <laughs> but that's beside the point. So, uh, so er- earlier though, back to talking about computers, earlier when computers were beginning to be used more often, they would actually bring her the calculations to verify their accuracy. Uh, because she was known for awesome. being, she was known for being incredibly accurate, and they didn't have, you know, the, the confidence really wasn't there, especially for that type of application in in, in those years. Um, later, she worked with computers herself, and uh, and it is thought that she may have perhaps instilled confidence in the use of computers at that time uh, in those early days. So Catherine was an incredible pioneer, and I wanted to talk about her, especially since this is Black History Month. And uh, so I'll end by saying, remember Catherine Johnson, guys. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when you're discussing vector sums to determine hyperbolic excess velocity or something like that. And uh, remember what she did. Yeah, I was reading some accounts of her. So she reports in an interview that she likes to count things. She's always liked to count things. Since she was a kid, yep. Counting, yeah, even, yeah, she steps. still likes to count things. That she, and things all need to be very parallel. Yes. So, straightening um, straightening yeah, pictures you know, and things on the wall. Hey, being well, anal like that is 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 good in a lot whoa, of ways. Whoa, what do we say? <laughs> <laughs> Jay, we we could use that word in that context. Yeah, you got to wonder where that came from. Like, is it because people were so nervous and excited that they were just clenching for a long period of time, and that's well, why they decided to call them anal? No, it's Freud, anal retentive, right? I mean, that's yeah. Then it gets short. It gets short into anal, and people forget the retentive part. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you, I, I still don't get it. I don't know. I wouldn't have picked those words. Whatever. All right. So, Jennifer, you're going to talk to us about the reporting of a recent news item about the evolution of mammals and dinosaurs. Yep. I figure if anyone can appreciate my rant on bad reporting and how much I hate creationists, uh, it's you guys who would appreciate it. So, did you guys see the news article that came out about the uh, the new ancestral mammals that pushes evolution of mammals back to like 160 million years? Yeah, they kicked dinosaur yes. ass. That's and that, actually that's one of the titles that really like got me pissed off. Um, yeah, it's yeah. meet the furry Jurassic critters that outwitted the dinosaurs. Um, uh-huh. And there's a whole bunch of other titles that are kind of along that of like, um, you know, our precursors were tree dwelling and uh, subterranean moles, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so I I read this article. It's on the surface, it's a great article, right? I mean, what do you guys think about the fact that we've got these really great skeletons that go back 160 million years? It's all, it's always cool. Right. I, fantastic. Yeah, I love how though, whenever they find any ancestor of anything in the vertebrate line or even, you know, anything in the, in any clade that ultimately le- led to humans or that humans belong to. They always call it a human ancestor. Mm-hmm. You know, they might as well call it a camel ancestor, you know, or a, a fish <laughs> a whale, ancestor. Yeah, right? yeah it's just... Other, yeah, it, tons of things is it related But it makes it sound like it's specifically a human ancestor, but no, it's the ancestor of everything with the backbone, you know, or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Yeah, and that's my real beef with this um, comes because in 2014, so last year, there was another uh, paper that was published in Science that actually claimed that they were going to uh, reclassify one of these early ancestors to mammals, which are called mammaliforms, um, that they wanted to actually put these into the mammal clade as well. Um, and that paper has been largely ignored by most of the community. And even the papers that came out this week in science um, re- don't refer to them as 
mammals. And so to kind of clarify things for you guys, we have what's called crown mammals, which are all the living mammals, right? Uh, things crown? with placentals. Crown mammals. Yeah, like a crown oh. on your head. I never heard of that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so that crown mammals are like what's living right now. And they're things that we can prove are mammals based on what's called synapomorphies, which are like shared traits for those organisms. Now, and to s- clarify though, those are, uh, currently extant mammalian, uh, group. But so does it, so if you're, you could still be a crown mammal, even if you're extinct, as long as your group is still around. Right, exactly. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep, as long as part so of the So colicotheres are crown mammals. Exactly. Oh, well, obviously. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah. Any idiot can know that. Oh, yeah, jeez. <laughs> oh, and I should clarify as I'm talking about this. I'm specifically a botanist and a palynologist. I study pollen. Um, so animals are a little outside of my wheelhouse, but evolution is really what I focus on. And so I might mispronounce a couple of these family names, but... Nobody will uh, notice. Oh, yeah, we no never one care. That. We never mispronounce things. With these ancestral mammals, we've got the crown mammals, which are all the living things. And then we have what's called mammalia forms, uh, which includes all of the living groups that we have, the crown mammals, plus all of the most closely related extinct uh, mm-hmm. mammal-like organisms. And so what you end up with is your kind of reptile-like mammals. Um, those are all in that group. And this group group goes all the way back to like the Triassic. That's kind of what we're looking at. Um, and so this paper really kind of beefed me off because you're, you're implying for the general reader that what we found is something that is ancestral to humans, ancestral to us. When in fact, it's not even related to us beyond the fact that a long, long time ago, we shared a common ancestor that split off and went a different direction and we came down another path. And so we're not really that closely related. Um, they're more mm-hmm. closely related to like, uh, platypuses and, or platypi? What's the plural for platypus? <laughs> Who knows? I saw platypu- uh, platypuses is the plural, no? Is it platypuses? I don't uh, know. Oh gosh. It sounds dirty. Platypuses. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I decided to dig in, into this a little bit. And so what I found is that this group of animals called, uh, docodons, uh, before, when we first started classifying these, we were only classifying them based off of teeth that we found. Because one of the things that we uh, use to identify mammals, besides the fact like hair, uh, that they have placenta, that they um, have mammary glands, is a particular type of teeth, like they have milk teeth. You know how you have one set of teeth and then those uh, fall out and then you have like your permanent set of teeth? Platypuses. Platypuses. <laughs> I <laughs> see. That is the correct plural. I, I, I instinctively you... know science. Thank you. What In... about pla- I'm looking at platypi right, right here. Check that's your a sources. Meal, Evan. That's not a. That's not a plural. That's a meal. And that's kind okay. of the kind. That's actually kind of the point of this. Is some sources when they're talking about science are wrong, um, or at least they generalize things. Um, because if we're talking about taxonomy, you have to realize that when we're looking at these kind of evolutionary pathways and we're referring to things as our ancestors, um, we're talking about periods in time, right? And defining a particular species doesn't really have anything to do uh, when we're talking about morphological similarities with the evolutionary history. Um, and the reason that there's a little bit of con- 
confusion there is that scientists, when we're talking about evolution to the general populace, we're generally talking about one particular type of species concept, which is called the biological species con- concept. And that concept, does anyone know what that is? You mean the idea about uh, you know, a species is anything that is actively sharing genes, you know, populations are actively exchanging genetic material? Yeah, that's pretty close. I mean, the, basically, if it can breed, it's a species. Um, and so if they can, if they have a way of recognizing each other, they can have sex with each other and then have viable offspring. Yeah. Uh, that's right. considered a species. Oh, so hang on, but I want to clarify that because I've read that you have to expand the definition a little bit because it's possible, for example, like two breeds of dog may be unable to breed directly with each other because of size differences, but they can indirectly share genes with each other so they're still part of the same species. So as long as there's any way to get genetic material from one animal to the other, they're the same species, even if they can't directly breed with each other. Yeah, and that that is absolutely part of a species concept, a definition of species. The, the, The point is, is there's actually 26 or so very different ways of classifying what a particular species is. Um, some of those use DNA analysis. Some of them use solely morphological analysis. And some of them use, like, cladistic approaches. But when we talk to the general populace, we're generally talking about the biological classification. I gotcha. Yeah. So with this paper, for example, what they're doing is they're comparing morphology, which is very specifically the um, phyletic uh, – or I'm sorry, the phonetic – morphological species concept, um, which is they're looking at similarities in the structures because they don't know anything about the living species. And so when you try to actually put that within the living mammals, for example, you are lacking information like you don't know if it had mammary glands because we didn't have any tissue remaining. We can tell things about the jaw or the teeth that gets us close to mammalia forms, but it's not enough information to verify either with genetics or with any of the the things we see in living organisms. Uh, We can't verify enough to actually put them into mammals proper. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. If the tissue doesn't survive, you can't know for sure. Exactly. Yep. And so I guess the biggest thing that I wanted to stress is like I start looking at all these kind of clickbaity science articles. And on one hand, I used to be really excited. I'm like, oh, I love all these. I won't call any specific out Facebook pages that are like science is awesome. Right. But if you Mm -hmm. look at them, they almost always get something wrong. And it took me a considerable amount of time to dig out the truth of this. And it's this type of kind of generalization or miscommunication that gives creationists a little bit of ammunition. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when they're, yeah, when they're actually fighting against real good science. Yeah, they'll often argue against mischaracterizations of the science in the, po- in the popular press. Exactly. As if that's the science. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I've seen that a lot. Yeah, like with this mammals one, um, the paper that came out in 2014 that's related to these uh, docodonts that they found this year, they basically brought it down to the kinds discussion of like, oh, see, there's all this diversification in mammals way back in the Jurassic. And so obviously the, all of these kinds always existed. It's just, uh, you know, they've, they've gone extinct. 
And if people see these as these are mammals and they're all part of exactly the same line that leads back to some, you know, the one original organism, um, they, it's easier for them to believe it. But if they understand the science and how classification works and how, you know, related organisms and plesiomorphic traits like ancestral traits work, it becomes a lot harder to fool them with these yeah. kind of, you know, bullshit stories of how kinds and stuff work. Because the real point of this, this, these papers are awesome. The point of these papers is that uh, diversification happens. And we had organisms that were diversifying and changing their forms to match different niches way back in the Jurassic. And that is super cool. That alone, it speaks to evolution and it talks about how species work. And so I don't want to lose that because people are thinking this is one solid line from humans back to, you know, mammalian-like right. lizards. Yeah. Yeah, the, I think when a lot of, of the popular press talks about evolution, there is a uh, a bias in that they're looking back from what we know happened, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's like saying this was the evolution of people, you know, but no, this was just local diversification. One branch happened to lead to mammals, which then diversified into, you know, other all the mammals we see today, but... They were not in the process of evolving into anything. They were just diversifying locally. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah. So there's sort of a 2020, a hindsight bias that distorts our understanding of how evolution works. Mm -hmm. The other cool thing here is that these mammalia forms, mammalia forms, the ones that were not quite mammals yet, but they were, you know, halfway between reptiles and mammals, mm -hmm. really is one of the best documented transition evolutionary transitions between major groups yep. that we have yeah we actually have we have uh fossils that document the evolution of the reptilian jaw to the mammal the mammalian ear yeah well and what's awesome. even what's even cooler than that i don't mean to interrupt <laughs> is the teeth so we used to just define it by the teeth and we made guesses about what these things looked like and what their form was and where they belonged in the phylogeny based on that now finding the whole thing fossilized the entire structure we we've basically verified the hypotheses that were that were made before uh which is just mm -hmm. proof you know it's this is how science works we can make predictions it's really exciting yeah. Speaking of how science works, we can move on to the next item. Uh, did any of you guys read Scott Adams, who's the author of Dilbert? He wrote an, he wrote a blog post, uh, recently about science and nutrition. Any of you guys read it? Mm-hmm. I, I did. Yes. Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Yeah. Rubbed me the wrong way enough that I wrote a blog post <laughs> about it. So he, he basically says that uh, he opens up, what is the big, what is science's biggest fail of all time? I nominate everything about diet and fitness. And then he goes on a pretty sustained rant about how, quote unquote, science, you know, without really defining what he means by that, has systematically misinformed the public over the last 50 years. So he has a list. He says, I used to think fatty food made you fat. Now it seems the opposite is true. Eating lots of peanuts, avocados, and cheese, for example, probably decreases your appetite and keeps you thin. I used to think vitamins had been thoroughly studied for their health trade-offs. They haven't. The reason you take one multivitamin pill a day is marketing, not science. I used to think the U.S. food pyramid was good science. In the past, it was not, and I assume it is not now. I used to think drinking one glass of alcohol a day is good for health, but now I think the, that idea is probably just a correlation found in studies. And he goes on. I really thought it was a terrible, a terrible article that systematically mischaracterized the history, how science works, 
how science is communicated. You know, the whole time he essentially blames science and he says people are justified in not trusting science because science has been so wrong, persistently wrong you know, on the idea of nutrition. And then also he says that science was quote unquote cocky and that when science is only halfway done with a topic, it's still wrong. And, you know, so it's not right until it's all the way right. So even when it's, you know, it's only partway done, it's still going to be, it's going to be wrong right up until the point where it's completely done, basically. Steve, these are all things we've heard in the past from people who are purely anti-science, pseudoscience, yeah. and and just absolutely, you know, against the the method of science itself. Well, and here's the deal: it's not, if, it's not nothing new, nothing new, but it shows which side of the art, which side, which camp he's in, basically. If everything that I knew about those topics was solely based on reading the articles that I see online, I'd have the same opinion as him, yeah. um, because that's, I mean, that's how a lot of the information is presented to the general public public online. Right. So you're for, to to describe what you're saying, like as an example, the press will pick up a study that. It's a very early study as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not fully cooked. You know, there might be some good research in there or starting research to get something going, but it's not a conclusion. It's certainly not a body of work or 20 yeah. years of work where you could say, hey, okay, look, we've thoroughly tested this every which way, retested our premises and everything. So yes, that's why we keep reading news articles and then you're like, oh yeah, a year later we found out that was complete nonsense because this mistake mm -hmm. they made or that mistake. So I can't blame you. I agree with you. I can't blame the general public. If, you, if you're loosely following the science news, you're going to see a lot of contradic contradictions, a lot of changing of like what the, what the common belief is or at least what the latest and greatest information is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the problem is his bottom line characterization is just completely misleading, in my opinion. So he, he, the only thing he gets right is that there were a lot of popular misconceptions about diet and nutrition over the last 50 years. He's correct about that, but he blames, again – science uh, rather than putting the blame where it belongs. So part of the blame, I think, in diet and nutrition, most of the blame, in my opinion, is sits in the lap of the uh, self-help and diet industry. Mm -hmm. There's an industry of books and diet plans you know, that are essentially uh, misinformation that are disconnected from the actual science. But they, but that's a huge industry. You know, there's a lot of money in misinforming people about nutrition. I think a lot of it is in the in the lap of the supplement industry for the same reason. I think that uh, a lot of it sits in the lap of the media uh, for reporting preliminary studies, not putting studies into their proper context. You know, doing a bad job of science reporting. Now, Adams mentions the media, but he calls the media science's winged monkeys. What the as, hell is as he if, talking about? Yeah, what the hell is he talking about? As ah, if servants, like, like, oh, deliver, like, yeah, like yeah, the media, yeah, media are the minions of, of science, minions. and so the science yeah. still gets the fault for what the media is misreporting. Well, wait, so is he saying that there's a coordinated effort between science and the media? Because I have such an amazingly strong opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> He's treating science like in the context of, you know, people like cranks treat big pharma or mm -hmm. big food. He's treat like big science is out to get us. It's all a conspiracy and here's how they're here's how they're No, doing he's not it. saying it's a conspiracy. He's saying that science is just cocky and that they they misrepresent preliminary findings that are ultimately wrong as if they're sure about them. He says this. The pattern science serves up up thanks to its winged monkeys in the media is something like this. Step one, we are totally sure the answer is X. 
Step two, oops, X is wrong, but Y is totally right. Trust us this time. So that's completely wrong. Yeah, yeah, that is not how science progresses. If you read the actual scientific literature, if you read interviews with scientists who are being responsible, you know, who are trying, you know, I think reasonably trying to communicate findings, they never say anything like, we're totally sure the answer is X. It's like, right. uh, at this point in time, evidence suggests that X is, it may be the answer. You know, that's, right. that's right, but what Steve, you get. It's important to note here that the vast majority of the articles that you read about new scientific findings are not writ- written by the scientists. They're written by people who read, hopefully, read the press release or read the the, the journal yeah. entry. And they're reporting on it and they're sensationalizing it and they're coming up with provocative headlines and you know making it... There's two uh, issues here, Jay. So one is his characterization of how science progresses, which is incorrect. You know, science isn't wrong... Well, and then, then until it's completely done with the question, then it finally gets it right. It's science is always coming up with approximations of reality, and those approximations get progressively more uh, detailed or higher resolution. So it's like X is X may still be right, but it's more complicated than we thought. We now have to modify X with this new information Y, and then that may even get need to get further modified. Now, it is true that sometimes when you have to make actual bottom line recommendations based upon our current scientific understanding, you may make recommendations that that are incorrect. Mm-hmm. That is true. And and so there's always a kernel of legitimacy here. It was true in the 70s and even into the 80s that the, the science suggested that dietary fat and cholesterol were a big problem and that you should you know, really decrease total dietary fat. And then we learned, oh, no, it's actually more important to adjust the ratio of HDL to LDL. So plant fats are good, animal fats are bad, and you know trans fats are bad or whatever. So we modified the knowledge and that did change our bottom line recommendations. So – you know, that, that, that's a, I think a more correct and nuanced view of how science progresses. But the other issue here is the communication of the science to the public. And the, there, we've reported on this quite a bit. I, I do think it's largely the, the, the fault of a scientifically illiterate and lazy, you know, media. But we also mm-hmm. know that, that the press offices of universities are hugely to blame. And that scientists themselves need to be doing a better job of communicating to their press offices and communicating to the media. So there's blame everywhere along the line, but yep. to, to not, it's not entirely in the lap of scientists. It's in, I think it's the, the, it's eighty percent in the media, and and then you know twenty percent in the, the scientists and the press offices are, who are not managing the media properly. That's um, being just being generous to the to the media, I would think. But yeah, yeah you're essentially I right. Think so yeah. too, yeah. You have to realize like how much pressure there is for scientists when they're publishing. Um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of scientists who I think would take, you know, take some issue with how their particular article is, is referenced in the media. But with a clickbaity title and a link that goes to their actual publication, they get money based on that. Or they, you know, their particular publication can get money based on that. Or if they're not getting money, in the very least, they're getting citations, which makes them um, more likely to be able to get additional funding down the road. And so those scientists don't spend a lot of their time, not all scientists, I should say, uh, don't spend a lot of their time like advertising their particular, you know, specialty or whatever their paper is. They, they're probably, some of them are going to be okay with the fact that there's clickbaity titles heading to it just because it leads to more money down the road for research. 
No, it's yeah, it's complicated. What's interesting is that Scott Adams himself left a comment on my blog. No way! So it's always nice. I love it when, when hey, hey, God. people I, I write about actually come and engage. Yeah, that, that is but, awesome. So I think he's going to introduce a new character soon to Dilbert. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't are be you, surprised. Are you sure it was him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, uh, he, the comment was very defensive. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. And it was childish, to be <laughs> honest with you. Childish? Yeah, yeah. Really? He says, you seem to have misunderstood the article entirely, perhaps intentionally. Uh, oh, then nice he says, opener. Or, or oh, are nice. you just an outrageist? Yeah, I'm an outrageist. <laughs> um, That's I've right. not heard that. Yeah, so just, time, okay. He didn't really address any of my points. He just, he just tried to say that I was mis- I misunderstood his article. That all he was saying is that scientists are not communicating well to the public, which is not true. And that I so I, I replied outlining my specific criticisms that he seemed not to understand. You know, blaming science uh, for misinformation, you know, calling the media the winged monkeys of science, the way he characterized the recommendations. First of all, he, he actually blamed like the obesity and diabetes epidemic on science, which is ridiculous. Uh, if you uh, read the – I mean, actually, I actually um, – for a separate article, I've been looking up 1950s educational videos. Have you guys? These are wonderful. I love watching them. You mean like those school. black and white reels? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah, wonderful. Yeah, them in high school. Let's talk about. Yeah, eat for but breakfast. Like, <laughs> the best breakfast is is, uh, is bacon and hash browns. And no, no, but it's all steak and it's All correct information. I mean, when you know the stuff about diet is all eat a varied diet, eat your fruits and vegetables. I mean, it's basically the big correct. Picture, right? The big yeah, the big is picture right. is correct. It's when you drill down to nuances. Where, you know, the science gets more complicated and, and there's shifting recommendations over the years. But you can't say that the bottom line recommendations of 50 years ago led to obesity and diabetes. That's ridiculous. And, and again, the, 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 the documents are there to show that that is silly. So anyway, uh, he has not responded to my response to him. Usually, when people like that leave a comment, it's a drive-by. Yeah. It's a one-off mm-hmm. drive-by. Yeah, they don't really usually stay to engage. But I, I, I was, left the field. I, I it bums me out. Yeah, I really, I really liked him. Because well, we like, because so we like Gilbert. Nah, yeah. you know what? I thought yeah. about it. I had plenty of time to think about this. So, you know, the guy's really good at being a comic cartoonist, right? He does a fantastic job. He's he's doing he's been he's done it for a long time. You know, I I don't expect all celebrities to be pristine in their knowledge and understanding and have a nuanced understanding like we do. I think we have to just look at it like yeah, another, you know, celebrity or pseudo celebrity that that doesn't quite get it. I still appreciate his work. You know, I'm not going to hate and do a ban on yeah. his work because I don't agree. Mm, yeah. You know, I feel I, in a way I feel sorry for him to be honest with you because he just, you know, he's trying, he is thinking, he's engaging yeah. and I find that at well, the Well, but Jay, he, he does if you read his articles, he has a history of being a, a provocative contrarian, which, you know, whatever, you could say this is just for entertainment value or whatever, but it's, you know, of dubious value. And then he could have engaged a little bit more maturely in my my blog, to be honest with you, you I know, agree with rather that. than yeah. being so defensive. Jay, you're too, you're being too nice. He is so dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> Dilbert is dead to you, man. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. He's now dead, Bert. Oh, <laughs> Evan, you're going to tell us about METI, M-E-T-I. Yeah. So, um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They are an international nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of all people. 
Yes. And they hold an annual conference, which was just held a few days ago in San Jose. And uh, this year's theme, there were, were the three I's, innovation, information, and imaging. This is where it all took place. There was a news briefing at that conference, which focused on METI, which stands for Messaging to Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now, we've spoken many times before on the show about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And SETI is a passive approach in seeking signals that are emanating from out in the cosmos as we're looking for sign, any sign of intelligent life that we can find. But with METI, it becomes an active pursuit in which we are looking to transmit or broadcast signals specifically to areas which we think are highly probable of all the places in the cosmos, that a sophisticated life form that's technologically advanced might be able to receive and understand our signals. This was a essentially a panel that consisted of a couple people we're familiar with. Uh, Douglas Vakoch, who's the Director of Interstellar Messaging and Composition at the SETI Institute. Uh, David Brin, ever heard of David Brin? Author, uh, <laughs> also with Futures Unlimited, San Diego. Out of I love San David Diego. Brin. Seth Sho- Yes, David. The Uplift Wars are awesome. Uh, Seth Shostak, we've uh, spoken to him many times on the show. He's a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. And David Grinspoon, who's a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute out of Tucson. And uh, each of these four panelists presented their viewpoints and opinions regarding actively transmitting messages into outer space. And, uh, there was quite a variety of opinion going on amongst these, amongst these people. Um, some people, such as Seth, were very much gung ho about it. And they feel that, you know, there's no point in waiting. In fact, we should get going right away with crafting a message and, and getting it out into space as far and as directly as we, as we possibly can with our technology. But then there is the other side of the spectrum, uh, which uh, I think David Brin held closely to that says, look, we got to really think this through and consider what are the risks of, of doing something like this, because it's probably not without risks and the risks could be far greater than we than we even conceive. I mean, who knows? We could have a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of scenario <laughs> coming along, which yeah, didn't guess, work out too well for Earth. I guess the but. assumption by some people is that, you know, they're they're going to be uh, benign, friendly welcoming or or the fact that the transmission would be would be picked up like we would find an alien transmission but you know if they can't fold space or or travel at the speed of light then we're not going to ever really encounter them but yeah you know i mean i don't know ev what do you think because i would say yeah let's always be a little careful when it comes to like alien species you know even though none have been proven to exist why not be cautious I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Yeah. Everything is so far away. I think the probability of like being invaded because aliens picked up on our signals is I, I have other things to worry about. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And Evan, I I totally agree. It did not work out well for the Earth, but it did work out very well for the hyperspace bypass. You're right. Actually, you're right. <laughs> it sure did. <laughs> and where would we be today without that? How are they? How are they trying to be careful though? Isn't that like an important point to clarify By- here? By not doing it, by not sending specific signals out into space to attract aliens' attention. 
basically they want to be isolationists and, you know, hide in the dark and not say anything so that no one knows we're hiding here. Wait, wait, wait. But what about the signals that have been that have been flying out at the speed of light already for decades? What, wait, did they even address that? I don't Did I miss something here? Yeah, no, they did. Address, they, they did address that. The term is called radio leakage. Right. And it is something that uh, Seth actually brought up uh, during during the course of it, essentially saying, hey, look, we're already doing this. Uh, inadvertently, uh, as he put, as he pointed out, he said, uh, I love Lucy is about 70 light years into space already, but it, you know, it's not a directed signal. It's not targeted at any of the systems that, you know, we're now aware about. Um, so this would be a, a fine tune and directed message that I think with all their, uh, with the technology that we have today, they pretty confident they can get about a hundred light years out there. As far as a direct, as, as far as a beam signal, a direct signal using what we have today. So, you know, that does kind of limit the play, you know, even a you know, hundred light years is, you know, relatively far, but you know, it's not, it's, 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 you know, it's not even a drop in the bucket though of the cosmos. So yeah, why not? I, I I'm on, I'm the camp mm-hmm. saying let's, let's do it. I mean, and it would be, it would be amazing if somehow we were able to get either some kind of response or, or something, but I, I think it's definitely should become part of the uh, of the larger SETI tent, if you will. I mean, the thing is, is if, if I'm going to die by a di- giant death ray, I'm totally cool with that because in my dying moments, I get to think, hey, we weren't alone in the universe. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. I welcome mm-hmm. being obliterated by aliens. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but what if they're like nasty uh, insect <laughs> aliens? That'd be really cool for all the entomologists. Yeah, but who, yeah, how many of them are there? And they probably kill them first <laughs> anyway. But the point is, because they you know, know too much. <laughs> I, I'm not saying like let's be super scared and all that stuff, but at least let's talk about it. Let's let's like you know weigh the the pluses and minuses. You know, I, I mean, I think I would tend to agree with you guys if it meant zero communication or blocking all of our radio signals. But you know, at least come up with a protocol and and you know an agreed upon path for something like this. The bottom line is we have no way to do any kind of risk assessment, you know, risk judgment because we have no idea how many aliens civilizations are out there, how far away the closest one is, even if we're aiming at them. It's just, the, you know, what, what the probability is of them having any, the technology to get here, the probability is of them being hostile. It's, it's a complete unknown. It's, and it's think, unknown. You're right. It's unknown. But the, but if you, if you gave it a really good guess, it would be completely negligible for, I for hundreds think, and I hundreds agree. or maybe tens yeah. of thousands of light years. Come on. I agree. And the fact, if they were close enough, that we had to worry about it, I think sending out a deliberate signal is not going to significantly alter our odds, you know, of, of running afoul of them. Yeah, so I just think it's not, yeah, statistically, it's not something worth worrying about. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week. We have a new sponsor, actually, Future Advisor. You know, guys, investing can be really, really complicated. There's so many choices to make. The, the key things that this company tries to address is making strategic investments and optimizing your por- portfolio. And the other part is to reduce those high, those crazy high fees that, that so many of us are paying. And it's this kind of benefit isn't going to just you know be a little bit of extra money down the road. This could actually save years off of your retirement. Imagine potentially retiring years earlier than you planned. Yeah, the good news is you could test out Future Advisor for free for three months. Because you're a listener of the show and you have really nothing to lose. I think it's, it's really interesting because after you put in all of your investments, Future Advisor 
will grade your portfolio, which is really awesome. It'll give you a crystal clear view into how well your portfolio is performing. And it, you know, the, the site will show you how to do that and make improvements for free, which I think is really useful. Yeah, or you can use their premium service and let them manage your portfolio for you with, for very competitive fees. So you can go to futureadvisor.com slash SGU and get three months of this premium investment management for free to try it out. Yeah, so go to futureadvisor.com forward slash SGU and you can get your free three-month trial. Give it a shot. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Jay, I know you've seen this video of Anderson Cooper interviewing Dan Burton. Tell us about it. Yeah, wow, this was a this is great. I absolutely loved it. So recently on CNN, Anderson Cooper indeed interviewed Dan Burton. So Burton is a former U.S. representative and a Tea Party member. And what a fantastic job Anderson Cooper did. He immediately starts the interview questioning Burton's stance on vaccines. I mean, he just comes right out of the gate swinging. And uh, Burton, you know, has been a longtime supporter of the idea that vaccines cause autism. I don't know if you guys are aware of that or not. He believes that mercury, uh, the mercury in the vaccines is a key component to uh, to giving people autism, that it like collects in the brain, and that's what, what's causing the neurological disorders. So Anderson Cooper, he just did a near-perfect job in an interview. Very few places he could have done a better job in there. Awesome. Yeah, it was really impressive, Bob. He did a fantastic job. And he had that almost He's, like Walter Cronkite cold look on his face like, you yeah. know, no, no emotion. There you know, he's a Vulcan and he's just he's just reporting the news. So, he's so alive to me. He um <laughs> I decided you need to hear it. I want to play a short snippet of the interview. Tell me what you think of this, guys. 3 years we had these hearings. And we did have those studies, and there's no question that many scientists around the world believe that the mercury in vaccinations is a contributing factor to neurological problems. It, now, it, I'm, now, listen, I'm for vaccinations, but we need to get the mercury out of all of them. Well, are you against breastfeeding a child? Here it comes. No, of course not. Okay, but you are aware that methylmercury is actually in, in breast milk that's given to children. And, in fact, the presence of, if a child is, is only breastfed, they get more methylmercury than they would ever have gotten in any of the vaccines. You're well, aware let of that, me, right? Let me just say I'm not an expert on breastfeeding. Wait, so I you hold for... hearings for three years and you, nobody ever told you that there's mercury in breast milk? <laughs> we never talked about that. What we talked about was the vaccinations. No. We the didn't get to that part. vaccinations should not be there for adults or children. Sir, you're aware that the kind of mercury that was in vaccines, which is no longer there, is different than the kind of mercury you get from fish. Correct. Let me just let me just tell you. Are you aware of that? If you'll do your research, you'll find that any type of mercury injected into the human body can cause neurological problems. Do you know what kind of mercury is in fish? Unmoved. Well, that, that's not the Unmoved point. Unmoved by. Oh gosh. Uh, but the, the, you know, <sighs> this is such a lesson. In, wow. And in, you know, when you look at the responses, now every response that Anderson Cooper had was based on science and the science literature. Every response that Burton had was anecdotal. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that, Jay. I mean, they, he, the thing is, he says he has studies, and the anti-vaxxers will say, yes, there are studies. They will point to studies that show that mercury is toxic. But you see how so he's building a case by giving partial information and then hoping you're going to make the inference the he wants yeah. you to make. So mm -hmm. he says that mercury is toxic. That's true. 
So Mercury first. can cause neurological disorders. That's true. Mm-hmm. Mercury shouldn't be in vaccines. Well, that's a little bit more problematic, but it certainly seems to flow from the previous statements. But what he isn't saying and what Cooper's trying to fill in, it's like, well, there's different types of mercury. The, you know, ethyl mercury that's in thimerosal is actually excreted by the body quickly. It doesn't build up in the tissues. It's not as toxic as methyl mercury. And it existed in, in extremely low doses that would not get to a toxic level. And clinical mm. studies have shown no correlation between autism and any vaccines. And, mm. and Cooper does go here. This is where, this is where I think Burton's case utterly collapses in 2001. By 2002, mercury in thimerosal was removed from the routine childhood vaccine schedule. And so vaccine now, instances still went up. Yeah, the autism the autism incident, incidents didn't change. Not a blip. It continued to rise as it had been without a change. We are now 15, 14 years out, you know, conservatively 13 years out, and autism rates they I mean they have to level off eventually, but maybe they're doing that they're doing that now, but they essentially over the last thirteen years they continue to rise without any change what, meanwhile in two thousand and one the uh anti vaxxers who who believed that thimerosal was causing autism predicted that autism rates were going to plummet in the next few years, and their prediction was spectacularly wrong and Now Burton is trying to just whitewash over that whole thing. He actually said, "Oh no, yeah, autism rates are leveling off, which is just wrong and so he just he lied about the facts, and then even if it is leveling off, that's not what you would predict if thimerosal was causing autism. you would have predict predict that the rates would plummet to their to their pre nineteen ninety levels, but the increase is not due to vaccines. It's not due to mercury. It's due to changes in the diagnosis and and, and the pattern of uh, of diagnosing the, the disorder. That's it. It's an artifact of diagnostic patterns and expanding the definition. So more children are being uh, diagnosed with autism, where thirty forty years ago they would have just been considered to have minor educational problems or whatever, but they yeah, weren't going or, to be diagnosed. So there's some diagnostic substitution going on. They would have been diagnosed as just having some non-specific neurological development disorder or speech disorder or whatever, but but not but not autism. So Cooper, I think, did a very good job of exposing the house of cards, and, and Dan Burton just kept returning to his talking point even after they'd been obliterated. You know, even mm-hmm. even when when Cooper already showed that he's he's essentially giving misinformation or leaving out critical information that would put the information he's giving into context. Also, Steve, I think uh, Burton's replies and what he said really betrayed in my mind the fact that he's been living in an echo chamber for yeah. years because he mm-hmm. did not oh, know yeah. basic basic stuff he's been doing this for years and he he should have had the different types of mercury on the tip of his tongue you know it no, should no, he no. should have yeah. known that he didn't necessarily need to know about the breast milk per se but the different types of mercury that should have been that should have been how could that know, have gotten past him after all those years right, right? like echo no, chamber like, echo chamber it, yeah just it's really it's really a shame yeah. yeah if you eat tuna fish you get more exposed to more mercury than in the entire Vaccine schedule at its peak, but now there's a, the mercury's gone. You know, it's I just, think mercury is delicious. Yeah, <laughs> great way to start your morning. Right, comfort of mercury. Well, so to summarize, I just thought that Cooper did a wonderful job. I commend him uh, for the level of research and his understanding. Yeah, it would have been nice if he pronounced thimerosal correctly, but I'll give him a pass on that. Eh, you know, pass. overall, this is the type of journalist 
or this type of journalism or this level of journalism is what we should be applauding. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he deserves uh, some some real credit here for what he did. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I wish that I knew who his science advisor was, like how how they actually prep him for this stuff. Because I've liked him before, but this totally made me just fall in love with him. Jay, a couple of weeks ago, you spoke about uh, new new uh, actions against uh, supplement producers for selling supplements that don't even have what's on the label, you know, in the bottle. Yeah, their their active ingredient isn't there. Yep. Yeah, the active ingredient isn't there. So I want to do a quick follow up to that because a scientific point came up in this discussion. What happened was that the uh, New York State was uh, taking action against various companies. Uh, like Target, for example, who were selling supplements, and they they found that uh, in a high percentage of cases, the uh, active, the alleged active ingredient that was on the label wasn't even in the pills. That instead, it was filled with fillers like wheat. But th- this was based upon the science they were using for this was DNA barcoding, so uh, using uh, snippets of DNA that are unique to one species and can very precisely tell you uh, what plant species, for example, you are dealing with. Uh, this is very useful because there, in especially with herbal supplements, there are often several closely related plants, some of which may be toxic, you know, and so you don't want to have a closely related plant. You want to have the actual plant that's supposed to be, you know, the the herb that does you know, what it's being sold for. So DNA, DNA barcoding can tell the difference not only between, you know, ginkgo biloba and alfalfa, but closely related species that could be confused with ginkgo biloba or, or other herbs. Now, what I was interested in was the response of the supplement industry. Guess how they responded to this action? They ignored uh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they said, they put out a press release. They said, these actions today by the New York State Attorney General offer smack of self-serving publicity stunt under the guise of protecting public health. Uh-huh. And what the, they accused them of relying upon bad science. They essentially said the oh. DNA barcoding studies are not proper. They're not validated. That they can miss the active ingredient and they can uh that yes there's you know yes all these things do have fillers in them but you know they they can't distinguish between you know a tiny amount of filler versus saying you know that this is what the whole thing is so okay so they they were defending themselves with a scientific claim that the dna barcoding has not been validated and is not the proper way to tell what's in the bottles they said they were essentially just denying the accusations and saying that the, the, the quality control is just fine and it's the DNA barcoding that is off. So, okay, I sunk my teeth into that specific claim. It turns out that, you know, they're wrong. There are, in fact, studies looking at DNA barcoding of herbal supplements. One study showed that, in fact, you know, they used known controls, right? So they, they knew what they were testing. And they, they found that the DNA barcoding bar was able to correctly identify herbs in uh, the form that you will no- would normally buy them in. So in other words, the process of drying and packaging the herbs did not destroy the DNA and did not prevent the DNA barcoding from working. So 
you know, again, there's always a sliver of truth in that, yes, this is a relatively new technology. It's true that the guy, the scientist they had doing the DNA barcoding isn't a specialist in plants. He's a specialist in DNA barcoding, but just not of plants. Apparently, it didn't matter because, you know, the, 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 the technique is valid, is valid. The other thing is that there's a tremendous amount of special pleading going on here. So, you know, in special pleading, even when your point may be technically possible, it's the fact that you're, you're invoking, you know, a series of unlikely scenarios in order to defend yourself. That I can't prove that they're all wrong. It's just very unlikely. So, for example, in order for the supplement industry response to be correct, the process of making an herbal supplement would selectively destroy the DNA in their active ingredient only, but not in their fillers. <laughs> why would that be? Why would it selectively destroy the DNA in ginkgo biloba and not in wheat or alfalfa? Uh, that, that's special pleading. May, I can't prove that it doesn't do that. But that's that's special pleading to say that that's the case. It also did detect it in some of the herbal supplements, so I guess it works sometimes, right? Again, that's special pleading to say, well, it would only it would work sometimes, but not at other times. Um, and also, they're saying that when it did detect alfalfa, there was only a tiny amount of alfalfa in there as a filler. It wasn't re- replacing the active ingredient. But again, they have no way of demonstrating that. So, what I do think should happen going forward. I do think there should be independent studies further validating the DNA barcoding technique, further investigating herbal supplements, you know, comparing it to, to other like gold standard techniques of looking at the constituents, you know, of the bottles and also quantifying the amount of, of the substances that are in there. Uh, you know, dot every I, cross every T. Sure. Do the follow up studies. Absolutely. Do the replication. You know, answer the objections. I think it's an important enough question that we want to do that. But the denial, the denial on the part of the supplement industry was uh, special pleading and and ignored that the fact that there are studies which, in fact, do show that this technique absolutely works for herbal supplements. Uh, and, so, and so I was not I was not impressed by their response. I should clarify for you, because this is actually something I've been uh, researching for a little while, uh, is the DNA barcoding techniques. Yeah. Uh, for the herbal supplements that they were looking at, they had a DNA barcode to work with. They had identified that particular unique um, DNA sequence that they were looking at. Yeah. If these supplement companies knew exactly what molecule um, or secondary metabolite or special metabolite was giving you this miraculous benefit of their supplement, we could test for that. But since they don't even know that, the best we can do is test for the plant that they're saying they're putting in there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, they're not they're not purifying or even identifying or quantifying an active ingredient. And yeah. so how could we test for that? Because you know what happens when we identify what makes a particular plant work for us? It becomes, becomes a drug. Medicine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at willow, willow yeah. trees, willow bark, yeah. and aspirin. Yeah. If we knew what the hell was yeah. doing something, or if it actually was doing something, we could come up with something useful and be able to actually create it in the lab. But we can't because there's yeah. nothing there. We'd identify it, Herb, purify it, t- test it. Yeah. Okay. Jay, it's who's yes. that, who's that noisy time? Exactly. So this was what, two weeks ago, Steve? Yeah. Hell yeah. I played a very, very provocative noise for you. Uh, um, I asked you guys to guess what it is, and a couple of people wrote in. Did anybody on the show guess it? I have no idea. 
Okay, I'll <laughs> play the sound for you again. It's the Bellerophon landing on the Forbidden Planet. It's got to be underwater. Yeah, it's the it's the alien from that Brady Bunch episode where Greg Brady was pretending that yeah. was an alien. The slide whistle. That was that. Yeah, the slide whistle. Thank you. So, somebody very intelligently said it's got to be underwater. Oh, it couldn't have been me. I don't yeah. say many intelligent things. Why would you say <laughs> that? <laughs> well, because um, it sounds like first I think I hear whale song. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But then it sounds like a like a submarine, you know, kind of that reverberation noise that you get with submarines. That's a fantastic point you made. That actually is a bearded seal doing the courtship sound. Wow. Bearded Hot. seals make those sounds. So seals it, have beards. I heard that, and of course, I'm thinking it sounds like God. What did that remind me of? And I'm like, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of that old sci-fi movie, Forbidden Planet. And I went back and I was listening to some sounds on Forbidden Planet. Now, check this out. That's from Forbidden Planet. That's the Krell music. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> I... I Really suspect that the musical composer of that music heard a, be- a bearded seal or some type of sea creature that makes similar noises. Sure, it's too coincidental. I listened to quite a bit of the of the Krell music, and there are extraordinary similarities between the two. Oh wow, um, super get cool! But anyway, so yeah, uh, that was the bearded seal doing the courtship sound. He's basically like yelling into the ocean. I'm here. I'm ready for hot. Sea sex just come at me. Um, Bearded sea sex. For this week, I came up with something. I'm sure some of you have heard it, but I, I find this phenomenon so interesting. I thought I would I would open it up to you guys and to all our listeners. Mm-hmm. Take a listen to this. I know what that is. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people will know, but I think it's interesting to talk about what it actually is. I'll give you one interesting tidbit of information. Here's my clue. Good luck. Take a guess on what you think that is. Like what's going on there? We'll talk about it next week. Jay, by the way, uh, in, on the Forbidden Planet, the sound effects are created by Beeb and Louis Louis Baron. And apparently those sound effects that you played were created by an electronic circuit that they made that they, they were able to manipulate in order to cause reverb and, and delay and whatever to create those sound effects. And apparently they burned out the circuit while making the sound effects for the movie and were never able to recreate it exactly. No oh, wow. way. Awesome. Oh, but what's even stranger cool. is a, a bearded seal – like rode in and sued them and was like, well, you know, that's yeah. my that's my jam, man. Total, total like copyright violation. 
that that is yeah. amazing though that bearded seal. Jennifer, what was the dumbest thing you heard this week? Beyond food, food babe. No, no, it could, I, whatever. Food babe is acceptable. If that's your vote, I think food babe is is like the stupidest thing I've heard all week. Yeah, Evan, you had a different vote though, which I think is an honorable mention. That's the uh, that's the Saudi cleric. Uh, th- this one's gone viral, of course. Oh, um, yes. Oh, Apparently, the God. Earth does not does not rotate at all. It is in fact stationary. No. And he gave an excellent, excellent example of how if an airplane heading from Saudi Arabia to China were to suddenly stop in midair, the, uh, you know, the earth would uh, not catch up with it. Yeah, he basically oh. said, we know it's not <laughs> rotating because, yeah, you could just sort of hover in the air and the earth would rotate underneath you and you could travel around the world that way. Uh, so if I jump high enough yeah. and stay in the air That's long right. enough. That's all you have awesome. to do. That yeah. is all you have yeah, to yeah. do. Yes. Apparently not familiar with you know, gravity and momentum and all that stuff. Honorable mention for the, cleric, yeah. for the Saudi cleric. But the Food Babes book is out, and uh, you got to love this pullout quote. There is just no acceptable level of any chemical to ingest ever. Except mercury. Don't ingest any right. chemicals, people. <laughs> yeah, so don't swallow your spit, folks. Yeah. Any it contains chemical. Oh, wait. Sodium chloride, that's a chemical. Oh, damn it. Damn it. Now let's should we define chemical? Well, she doesn't define she chemical. Does, she doesn't. Yeah. She <laughs> oh, apparently oh, doesn't whoops, know sorry. what it means. Now, if you're being charitable, I think it's always a good idea to to ask yourself what would be the most charitable way to interpret what somebody said. Perhaps she's referring to synthetic chemicals, right? You could or she just assumes that the word chemical refers to only synthetic chemicals. Her statement is still nonsensical because, <laughs> you know, saying that there's no acceptable level is just wrong because toxicity is all about dose. dose everything, dose, everything is toxic in high enough dose. Water. You and, water. Yeah. And water pretty poison. much anything in a tiny enough dose. I mean, those other things you, you can never ensure a zero level of anything. You know, you can never say that, you know, our tolerance level is zero. For anything that you can measure, because you'll find it, you know, even if it's in one part per trillion, you'll find it. You have to set some limit, and that limit can be set uh, by toxicity data. You know, usually uh, what the FDA or other regulatory agencies do is measure uh, toxicity levels in animals. Uh, they may be able to infer it in humans or whatever. They get their, they marshal the best data they have to figure out what the toxicity levels are, and then they say that they'll allow the the uh the most that they will allow in whatever is like two orders of magnitude lower than that. So they usually build in a buffer of about two orders of magnitude. A hundred times, which, people. Yeah, which means you would have to exceed the limit by a hundred times to get to the minimal toxicity, toxic dose of something. When they define something as toxic, they're not, I'm assuming they're not talking about death necessarily, just negative effects. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're not talking about the LD50, which is a – that's a specific test. The LD50 is the dose that is required to kill 50% of lab animals that are given whatever. Gotcha. Cool. I like okay. that number. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one number that is used, the LD50, but that's not the minimum dose that causes any measurable toxicity. You know. So in any case, that's just – it's just naive. Of chemistry and, and science, you know, and biology to say that there's no acceptable level. Uh, it's just ridiculous. And clearly she doesn't understand what a chemical is. Uh, if you, if you tried not to eat any chemicals, you would die. It makes me sad for humanity. Yeah, that reminds me, somebody came up with a, uh, a poster or infographic that showed the chemicals in a banana and the list was yeah. like unending and scary sounding. 
I'm sure she would have nightmares <laughs> if she read that. Hey, guys, I have a really exciting news. Are you sitting down? We've, oh, sure, we booked our keynote for okay. Nexus. Nexus, New York City, April 9th to 12th, uh-huh. will be keynoted by Bill Nye the Science Guy. Oh, my God. How <laughs> awesome. I'm really yeah. looking forward to so that. Excited. All right. Oh I've got shivers. <laughs> it gets better than that. It so, gets better. Much better. Wait so Friday no. night, the SGU and George Robb are doing the extravaganza, and we contacted Bill's uh, agent and made the request, and Bill agreed to do the show with us. He's going to be on stage with us for two hours doing the entire extravaganza. Yeah, that's, the extravaganza. that's the Friday night show. He was excited to do it with us. Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think Bill remembered shooting video with us. Well, we've we've interviewed Bill many times or whatever, but we spent a lot of time with him at TAM uh, last year. We, we shot some video up, and you're going to see the video that we shot with him very soon up on our YouTube channel. And I think he, re, you know, he learned more about us, and I think that's why he agreed to do this. But no matter what made his mind Or he up, forgot entirely and decided to. Exactly. Thank you, Evan. No, but we can't be more excited to spend two hours with Bill doing something fun. You know, the, the extravaganza is um, a mishmash of lots of different things, but it, it really – there's a lot of improv in there. We do a lot of uh, science and skepticism-oriented content, different types of bits and all that stuff. It's just one thing after another. It moves very quickly. There's a quiz show. Just a lot. It's a lot of fun, and the fact that Bill's going to do it with us blows my mind. I'm so excited. I can't wait. We, we always, you know, each time we do the show, we tweak it and we try to raise our game and make it better. And now we're going to do that with Bill Nye in mind. You know, we're going to, you know, write, uh, iterate the show. You know, change some of the content, and now we could specifically do it to accommodate uh, his presence. It'll be. It's going to be a ton of fun. So go to nexus.org, N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G to sign up for the conference, for the workshops, and for the extravaganza on Friday night. Just take a look at the different things that we have to offer. I think you're going to love the conference this year, guys. It's going to be awesome, and I'm dying for it to begin. Okay, guys. Well, let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. No theme this week, just three, I hope, interesting news items. Are you guys ready? Yes, we are. All right. Bob is. Jennifer, you ready for your first science or fiction? Let's do this. Okay. Item number one, scientists carefully mapping the activity of the brain during speech find that Broca's area, long thought to be responsible for speech output, is inactive during actual speech. Item number two, recordings from the Van Allen probes indicate that solar shockwaves can accelerate electrons in the Earth's radiation belts to greater than 99% the speed of light, close to the speed of particles in the Large Hadron Collider. And item number three, a recent study finds that women with mild knee osteoarthritis benefit from high-impact jumping exercises without adverse effects on their knees. Well, Jennifer, as our guest, you have the distinct privilege of going first. Ooh, I'm very honored. Okay. You should be. Let's see if we can break this down. So the one for mapping the activity of the brain of Broca's area I can understand it being responsible for speech output. Um, I guess I could understand it maybe being inactive during actual speech. Like maybe it's you use it to actually form what you're going to say, but then 
something else happens. I'm not sure. I wish I knew more about the brain. Huh. One's a tough one. Uh, the, the one about the solar shockwaves sounds really cool and sounds plausible, but what the hell do they mean by solar shockwaves? Like, are we talking about a particular, is there a definition for solar shockwaves that I can know? There is. There's a very specific definition of solar shockwaves. It's, okay. It's- hmm. <laughs> Okay. Welcome to science or fiction. Well, it's not going speed of light. Yeah, exactly. But they do they do mention the LHC, so I have to love that one anyway. Uh, the last one uh, about the mild knee um, osteoarthritis, high-impact jumping exercises without impacting their knees. I don't know. That sounds, like, really not cool. Like, if your knees are bad, maybe jumping is bad. So I'm going to say that the one with the mild knee osteoarthritis benefiting from high-impact jumping, I'm going to say that one is fiction. Okay. Jay? Yeah, the first one about Broca's area here, um, saying it's inactive during speech. I'm really shocked to hear that. I thought that we had ways of uh, viewing the the brain's activity during you know, almost in real time, and huh, that that one is is interesting. The second one about uh, this Van Halen probe. Now, what is this? A lost album or something? <laughs> yeah, jump. Oh wait, that's the third. <laughs> um, so there's solar shock waves, and these these freaking shock waves can accelerate electrons to almost the speed of light. I don't know why you'd be afraid of that, Steve, and why are you so scared of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's interesting. I mean, I, I I'm thinking about it, and I'm not. No red flags are going up. And this one, this one other one, uh, this final one uh, about uh, women that have the the mild knee osteoarthritis, they benefit from high impact jumping exercises. I don't know, man. People with bad knees should not be doing high impact jumping of any kind. I mean, seriously, Steve. I have to take that one as the fiction. Okay. Uh, so Bob, you're coming off a double fail last week. Wait, oh, <laughs> no. wait, wait, wait now. Well, I'll, I'll add salt. along with everybody else. So wait. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia fiction is is included as part of uh is definitely included as part of science or fiction. Well, you lost the regular science or fiction too, so it doesn't really. Yeah, but matter. It, is it really? <laughs> sure, it does. A double is a lot worse. Than we a, we have. Well, we'll put an asterisk next what you, to it. A fish, you know? What have you done in the past? I'm, I'm actually very curious. We have, inclu- we have included it in our statistics in, pe- in previous um, years. Okay. <laughs> that will get um, it. Hey, well, that means I'm running 0%, so because we all got swept <laughs> on that last, last week. Crap. All right. Anyway, go ahead. You're next. All right. Um, Almost got it right. Osteoarthritis. You know, that I think that's a tricky one uh, because, I mean, if you've got – Bad knees, general wear and tear, that type of thing. <laughs> Trick knee. Then, then sure, I would say this, this makes no sense. But I think because it's osteoarthritis, it doesn't, it's not necessarily as bad as, as you would think. And perhaps it has some weird re- reaction where it actually, uh, lessens the pain. I, I could kind of, in a weird way, see that one making sense because it's just too outrageous to be fiction, I think. You, you, I think that's a trick one. The shockwaves, the solar shockwaves. Yeah, I mean, I can I can kind of see that. I, I do remember reading a long time ago. I mean, it's not a, a current news item, but a, quite a while ago, uh, reading about uh, electrons being accelerated uh, by the sun in that in that way. I don't remember how fast, but um, I think that's could be it could be plausible. It's not necessarily completely out there. The the Broca's uh, area though that one is like you know I'm just I'm not buying that one because I even before we studied it as you say carefully 
carefully mapping uh, that area. I think even before, you know, maybe they were, you're were talking about fMRI or whatever. I think we had a pretty good idea that, that it was used at, at some level, um, during speech. Um, granted, there could be some subtle thing about it that, you know, it's used for speech, but not necessarily during speech. Um, I could, I bet you that could, that wouldn't shock me, but I'm, I'm going to say that one, uh, is fiction because I just think we can't be, quite that wrong just because we we looked at it carefully as you say okay all right evan yeah the thing that's throwing me wrong about the broca's area one uh, inactive during actual speech i think there's going to be a twist here in which maybe it's not entirely uh inactive but maybe there's some sort of lesser effect going on i'm not quite sure how to phrase it almost uh, uh turning on and off sort of a fluctuation there rather than an entire inactivity. Uh, for a lot of the reasons Bob said, I thought this was pretty well defined. Uh, therefore, I, the other ones are, are are moot based on that. So I'm going to say the Broca's area one is the fiction. Okay, so we got an even split. We got Bob and Evan for Broca's area, Jen and Jay for the osteoarthritis. So that means you all agree on number two. So we'll start there. You all agree that recordings from the Van Allen probes indicate that solar shock waves can accelerate electrons in the Earth's radiation belts to greater than 99% the speed of light, close to the speed of particles in the Large Hadron Collider. You all think that one is science, and that one is the fiction. Oh, my oh, God. God. Oh, serious. The weep. Huh. Number two, yeah. two weeks oh, in a row. Suck. You suck. I don't feel as bad since we all missed it. <laughs> I don't like this game. <laughs> this was cool, though. So, wow. yeah, so we have the Van Allen probes are sitting there up in the Van Allen radiation belts of the Earth. And in 2013, they recorded what happened when a solar shockwave struck the Earth. It bounced off the magnetic you know, field of the Earth. And then essentially sent this pulse, this, get this, Bob, magnetosonic pulse. Oh, I love it. If I were a superhero, I want that to be my power. I want to be able. (laughs) I agree with you, Steve. That is awesome. I want to send out magnetosonic pulses that accelerate uh, electrons. So it, it would it would circle, you know, basically bounce around the magnetic uh, field of the Earth, taking just a few minutes to go around the Earth. This, you know, a really fast shockwave. Now it is a, it is magnetic. It does accelerate electrons. So um, it would accelerate electrons pretty significantly. And in fact, if the electrons happen to be going in the same direction as the magnetosonic pulse they would be exposed to it for a long period of time. And the longer they were exposed to it, the greater they would be accelerated. So what the probes detected was a tenfold spike in the number of so-called ultra-relativistic electrons. These are electrons that are traveling at relativistic speeds. What's uh ultra-relativistic, like 90%? uh, No, no. Ultra-relativistic just means... That, you know, fast enough that rel- relativistic uh, factors Wait, are Wait, that's what relativistic means. I know. I, I don't know. It's just that's – I read it. That's the definition. Oh, well, they're you wrong. Know? Okay, go ahead. But uh, <laughs> the, these electrons are getting, up, are getting up to 1,000 kilometers per second. So that is, you know, a 300th mm-hmm. of the speed of light, not, not 99% of the speed of light. So that was what made it right. fiction. I, 
multiplied it by about 300. Uh, yeah, 300. nowhere near what, you know, the, the Large Hadron Collider also is getting electrons up to 99.995% of the speed of light. Wow. Yeah, so it's not, that 99% is not greater than the LHC, and these electrons are only getting 1,000 kilometers per Wait, second. The speed of light is 299 kilometers 299,000 kilometers per Steve, second. Google the LHC. Yep. They, they accelerate protons, um, not exclusively, but they primarily work with protons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the particles they accelerate get up to right. 99.995%. Important difference. Go ahead. So well. that was the fiction. Let's go back to number one. So, of course, the other two were signs, but uh, number one, scientists carefully mapping the activity of the brain during speech find that broke his area, long thought to be responsible for speech output, is inactive during actual speech. This one totally would have gotten me. Yep. What uh, the this hell? This is very surprising. I feel so For much better now. For 150 years, 150 <laughs> years. I've been teaching this to students for years. I mean, the Broca's area. It's the speech <gasps> center of the brain. This is what is responsible for speech output. It's actually doing the speaking. It's not true, it turns out. So here's oh. the difference between anatomical mapping and functional mapping. So we, we know what happens when Broca's area is damaged, right? So that's when Broca's area is damaged. That's so that's like as a practicing neurologist, that's what I see. I see people who come in, they have a stroke, the stroke's in Broca's area, and I know what they their exam is like. They can't speak. They have a stuttering uh, speech. They have a hard time getting the words out. Sometimes they can barely produce any speech at all. Um, that's a Broca's aphasia, right? So clearly, Broca's area is necessary. I think, as you said, Bob, it's involved with the speech output, but it's not what's producing the speech in real time. It's yeah, probably it. involved yeah. in the planning and of speech. Uh, what what uh, the the researchers likened it to the script. You know, the, the Broca's area is writing the script, but then the motor cortex is still physically doing the speaking. So what they found was, and also. This is what they were doing. They were looking at patients who have epilepsy, who are being evaluated for epilepsy surgery. And uh, what we do is we lay strips of these tiny electrodes actually on the surface of their brain. And so this, you would never do this to a human being just to do research. But if you're doing it for surgery, you could do a little research, you know, in the few days that they have this on. So that's what they did. So they were able to, to re record in a very precise way, brain activity during speech. And what happened was Broca's area was active prior to speech and then became quiet when they were actu actually speaking, which was shocking. You know, it was very surprising. That's like, it goes against what we thought we knew for 150 years. So uh, Broca's area, again, is probably involved in the planning and the scripting of speech, but then the executing of the speech, it's, it's, its job is done when you actually start to speak. It probably also is monitoring and the speech and giving you feedback so that you can, you know, you can modulate your own speech. You know how like people who are deaf can't speak because they can't hear themselves? Yes. So that may also be partly modulated through Broca's area. So this also is, it's interesting. You know, when you read, it's like, yeah, yeah, this totally makes sense and it is totally consistent with our previous data. It's just a new way of interpreting it. Um, and also is more in line with what we're learning now that we are have these functional ways of looking at brain activity like fMRI and EEG, et cetera. We're seeing that that the it's the module versus network debate 
right? So are there like pieces of the brain that do specific things or are there networks of different parts of the brain that are involved in activities? So this is kind of moving more towards the sort of the network approach is that, yeah, Broca's area is involved in a network. It's coordinating information from Wernicke's area, which is involved in, you know, interpreting language and the motor cortex and it's sort of planning the actions that the motor cortex are going to take based upon this sensory feedback and this language input, et cetera. You know, so you still need it. It's required to, to p- produce fluent speech, but it's not what's doing the speaking. But there's, I would think there'd be, um, you know, an interplay between the motor cortex and Broca's area while you're speaking. It's still planning what you're going to say. It's not just a, a dead lump of brain tissue while you're talking. Well, maybe it has to become quiet so as not to interfere with your current speaking. Which means, which you know means you mean? can't plan what you want to say while you're talking? That doesn't sound right. Well, it just goes so fast. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, well, it's, it's, it seems instantaneous. That seems, that seems important. Now, this is now a new study changing what we thought we knew about Broca's areas. So now this is obviously going to have to spawn further research. Steve, if you damage a different part of your brain – um, you won't be able to do funny voices. It's called the Hank's area. Nice, Jay. That's a good one. Sweet. Been sitting on that one for a while, Jay. No, it literally just occurred to me. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But Broca's area had nothing to do with you talking about it. <laughs> okay, number three, a recent study finds that women with mild knee arthritis, osteoarthritis benefit from high-impact jumping exercises without adverse effects on their knees is also science. And this is also surprising yeah, uh, because you would that think be that true? jumping around is exactly what you're not supposed to do <laughs> when you have right. osteoarthritis. So – Little background. Osteoarthritis is the, the wear and tear, you know, degenerative form of arthritis. It's not inflammatory uh, or, or like rheumatoid arthritis. We all get osteoarthritis of our knees, you know, as we get older sucks. to some degree. Yeah. It's just our knees wear out. So these were mainly older women, uh, 50 to 65 years old. They had mild osteoarthritis and, uh, what they did was they gave them an exercise regimen that involved, uh, high impact training, um, so both uh, with resistance and also with uh, changing direction, you know, again, like the exact thing you think that they shouldn't be doing. And what they found was that the exercises increased the bone content in their leg bones, uh, which was good, and that would serve to strengthen the knee joint, but it did not have a negative impact on the cartilage. They used MRI scans to... Uh, to investigate the composition, the biochemical composition of the cartilage. And they found that it, it stayed the same. So it was not adversely affected by these exercises. So again, this is one study. It's one way of looking at this. I'm not going to pretend this is the last word definitive on this, but that's what the study showed, um, which was interesting. So it's always a, it's a risk versus benefit thing, right? With exercise, especially as you get older, there's, there's no question that weight bearing exercise is really helpful when you're over 50 because it helps maintain bone and muscle mass, you know, which is critical because basically you're coasting from 50 to the grave with what you got. So you, you <laughs> want to keep it as long as you possibly can. And the way to do that is with resistance exercises. But the downside to that is your joints 
you know, get suffer wear and tear. So that's why they did this study. They wanted to see, you know, hey, should we have them do resistance exercises? Is it going to screw up their knees? This suggests, at least in this study, yeah, they did okay. You know, 12 months after 12 months, their knees held up. It didn't, it didn't adversely affect their knees. Hmm. I want to see the waiver for that one. Yeah. Listen, I know you have knee problems, but we're going to make you jump around yeah. for a while and just <laughs> see how that goes. Right, right. Sign here. It's interesting. <laughs> Jennifer did a valiant effort on your first science or fiction. It was a tough, particularly tough week to walk into, I must admit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should have had me do this when you had all the uh, the botany questions. Yeah, I would yeah, have yeah. nailed that. It would have been awesome. All right, Evan, do you have a quote for us? I do. And here it is. For a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled. And that was written that. by R- Richard Feynman comes directly from the Rogers Commission report, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, commission set up by uh, President Reagan to investigate the Challenger explosion in 1986. And did you know, and you're always going to learn something new about these people as I bring up these quotes, when Richard Feynman, a very young Richard Feynman, got bored in the remote New Mexico desert when he was working on the Manhattan Project, he had found another hobby, Cracking safes. Eventually, he became so good, he could open nearly every cabinet containing secret documents at the, at the, wow. at the awesome. facility. That's awesome. <laughs> How cool is he? All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Thanks, Steve. Steve. You swept us again. You burst it. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks for joining us. It was a lot of fun having you on the show this week. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, no, it was it was great. I had a really good time. I felt like an ass about most of it, but I definitely had a good time. What? What a coincidence. Yay. You fit right in. All right. Thank you all again. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh